All right, well, let's get our Bibles out today. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at some scriptures there in chapter 6. As we get ready to jump into this word, today's the conclusion of a series that we've been doing all month called Adulting is Hard. And I want to, uh, one more time, I want to share a few of the memes that we've seen circulating on the internet that just underscore this reality in some people's lives. Maybe you could uh, relate to some of these, like, like, where's the unsubscribe button on adulthood? You ever been there? Just wish you could just... Just get off that train and unsubscribe from that. Or or how about this one? I can't adult today. Tomorrow isn't looking good either. (laughs) Right? Just just be honest. Okay, how about this one right here? Does woke mean worried and broke? Because then I am extremely woke. (laughs) Some of y'all didn't know what woke meant, but now, now we have a new definition. Or how about this one? Me, treat yourself. Bank account, do not treat yourself. Maybe you got that notification this weekend with Black Friday. Like, just, just stop. Just stop. Don't, don't do what you want to do. Right, how about this one? I want to pause adulting and lower the difficulty. You ever wish that life was like a video game? Like, you know, this is just too hard. If we could just go down to the rookie mode, I'll be good. Or right, right, how, about, how about another one here? I don't run from my problems. I sit on my couch play on my phone, and ignore them like all other adults. (laughs) Maybe you've had a day or two like that, which is probably okay. A week or two, probably not. Probably not. So how about this one? One day, you're not old. The next day, you have a favorite grocery store. (laughs) Kind of sneaks up on us. But adulting can be hard. And today, what I want to do is, honestly, I have three different thoughts, and we're not going to push this series into December, so I'm going to try to tie these three things together. But three things that I really felt like the Lord wanted me to just speak to you about and encourage you in today, and that is this, God's will, your work, and then I want to talk about something that often tries to complicate those two things, and that is worry. God's will, your work and worry. You know, the world and the media today, even our own internal desires, they tell us that the way to be happy is to pursue more things. That the way to be happy is to have more stuff, to have more fame, to have more power, to have more sexual partners, whatever it might be. More is the solution. It is the answer to whatever the equation. In fact, our U.S. economy is is built around this premise of of getting more, buying now, paying later. And and I know I'm probably striking a nerve because it it, it is Black Friday weekend, and many of us have, have been shopping. I read an interesting stat that economists say Americans are expected to drop 90.5%. 14 billion dollars shopping this weekend from Black Friday and Cyber Monday. That was billion with a B. And the fact is, and we all know this to be true, we do have more stuff and we do have better toys than anyone in history. We are we are, are so inundated with, with riches and, and, and gadgets and stuff to just satisfy our life, and yet the studies are overwhelmingly obvious that we are still more sad, more depressed than ever before. 
Something I read just this week and I thought was interesting is even with the holiday shopping, that, that, that there's a, a negative kickback to it. I, I read a stat that was pretty fascinating. It says, studies show that an estimated 52% of people who have purchased something on sale later regretted it. I hope that's not you this morning. I hope you're happy with everything you bought, that thing you just had to have, that thing you were throwing elbows for at 4 a.m. I hope you got what you wanted. But in just the past year, the stat says that regretful bargain shoppers spend an average of $1,007 per item, totaling $132.7 billion in remorseful discounted purchases. Things we bought because we thought we had to have, and then we thought twice. The reality is, in our world today, and maybe you're here and you've experienced this, we've pursued happiness to no end, and yet we are a sadder generation than any that have lived. And what I want to say to you at the onset of this message today is that there is a far greater purpose than the pursuit of happiness. There is something far weightier and lasting than the American dream, that God has a purpose for your life. God has a purpose and a destiny that he has in mind. And listen, I know that sounds like preacher talk, but some of you, you came this morning and that is what you need to hear. That is what you need to know. And some of you, I need to add the word still, not just God has a purpose for your life, but God has a purpose Still, because there was a time when maybe you believed that. There was a time when I might have got two amens in the room, but you've lived life and adulting has been hard. And now you hesitate. You wait for the bait and switch. You wait for the gimmick. Like, I, I hear what you're saying, but you're about to pull the rug out from under me, right? No gimmick. No tricks. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And yes, adulting is hard. But I believe the prophet Jeremiah had it all right in Jeremiah 32, 17. When, when he looked up from all of the, the noise of life and all the things that was going wrong, and he looked up toward heaven and he said this, he said, "Ah, oh, sovereign Lord, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by your own great power and outstretched arm. And then he made this statement, and I want you to say it out loud with me. Are you ready? Here we go. Nothing is too hard for you. He believed that. Like, you know, yes, it's tough. Things are not going the way I wanted them to go. But I'm going to look up, and I'm going to get a revelation of God, and I'm going to make this declaration from my spirit. Nothing is too hard for you. Can I just remind you today that God has placed his hand on your life? He's made his face to shine on you. That's his grace. That's his favor. And of all the things that you could call him and all the expressions that we could loud him with today in worship, his most favorite name is Father. And he has chosen to identify himself as your Father in heaven. And I'm going to tell you today, he wants you to succeed more than you want it for yourself. Say, how, how, how do you know that? I know that because of the price he paid to make it happen. The Bible says in Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said it like this, John 10 and verse 10. He said, the thief, that's the devil, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and that you may have it to the fullest. 
to the fullest. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say, I have come that you may fulfill the American dream? I mean, come on. He's got something more for you than that. You can trade up. You can have a a better hope, a better future, a better plan. He came to give you life to the full. You know what full means? It, It means no more room. It means no more need. You're full. You're satisfied. Paul said it this way. He said, Jesus is our all in all. Whatever I'm in, he's all I need. He's all in all. It's the fullness of Christ in our life. He has a plan for you today. And listen, young adults especially, here's the counsel that you might often hear. People will tell you life is short. And that is true. And the heart behind that counsel is don't waste a moment. You know, don't, don't waste uh, your days because life is short and, and time is precious. And that is absolutely true. It's the one commodity that nobody can buy more of. We all have just what we've been given. But I want to tell you a different word of encouragement today. I want to tell you life is long. Life is long. I mean really long. I'm not talking like 85 years or 90 or 95 years. I'm telling you the person sitting to your left and to your right, they are going to spend eternity somewhere. Forever and forever and forever and a day. It's going to be long. Life is long. And the reason that I tell you that is because I want to challenge you to live your life with the long view in mind. You know, I was sitting around the table like many of you were this week with, with my family, and my grandfather passed away a year ago, and so my family's been kind of going through some of his stuff, and, and my dad showed me a picture on Thursday of my great-grandfather, my granddad's dad, and, and, I, and I'm looking at this young man. It's an old picture, and he's telling me some stuff about him, and I'm realizing in this moment, like, I know Virtually nothing about about this man. I mean, I, I really I don't know much of anything about him. I don't know I don't know where he lived or or how old he was when he got married. I don't know what his favorite color was or what his hobbies were or or where he worked. Like I'm looking at this and I'm going, this is this is amazing. I mean, this is my great grandfather. I mean, I, literally, I would not be here if it weren't for him. <laughs> I mean, without him, I don't even exist. And. And I don't know anything about him. And and here's why that was so alarming. Because as I'm processing this and I'm listening to my dad tell me stories, it dawns on me. In 80 years, no one's going to care about all the stuff that I cared about. No one's going to worry about the stuff that I worry about. No one is going to be looking through archives to see what I posted on Instagram. Could you imagine that, you know, your great-grandchildren going, yeah, oh, Grandpa, he had like 5,000 friends on Facebook or something like that, or, or no, it was Telegram. I think that's what they called it back then, Telegram. Yeah, he was really popular on this, oh, it was this device thing, it was called ClapChat, I think. I'm not really, I'm not really sure. You know, they're, they're not going to care. And so I'm kind of taking in the weight of this moment, and then my youngest daughter, Mally, comes up, and I'm like, Mally. Look at this, look at this. This is your great, great grandfather. And I'm kind of in the moment. She goes, can I have dessert? (laughs) And I'm like, there it is. That's the reality. 
And, and I don't know how many years I have, but here's the truth. If the Lord doesn't return, one of these days, I'm going to breathe my last breath, and they're going to put me in a box, and everybody's going to follow me to a hill, and they're going to put me in the ground. And then do you know what's going to happen? They're all going to come back to the church and eat macaroni salad. That's the plan. So what are you investing your life in that a thousand years from now is going to matter? Or a hundred years from now? Or 50 years from now? What are you doing that's going to actually matter? I want to challenge you today to hear this. Life is long, and we ought to live with eternity in our sight. Live with eternity in mind. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6. Look at it with me. He said these words in Matthew 6, verse 19. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust or vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. You know what Jesus was saying? He was saying nothing in this life is going to last. Nothing in this world, the, the, the tangible things, the things we go after, the things we run after, the things we pursue, the things we think we have to have, and I just have to have it, and oh, if I don't have it, it's going to be a terrible Christmas, and then next year, we drop it off in the back corner of the church for Project Toy Box, because apparently somebody else has to have it. But we can get so fixated on the here and the now that we spend our efforts and our energy and our anxiety on temporal things that are going to fade. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Store up your treasure in heaven. Paul talked about it too when he was writing to the church at Colossae. He said, this is, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. If you're going to follow the Lord, this is the way that we look at life. This is the, the way that we think about things. Look at this verse. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Verse 3, I love this. For you died. He's talking about your salvation. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We symbolize that when we get baptized in water. You don't, you don't go under the water and stay under the water, but just like Jesus, he went down into the grave. He came back with resurrection life. We're saying, the old me is dead. I have a resurrection life on the inside of me. My life is now not my own. It's hidden in Christ. And then I, I love this, this next verse. He says in verse 4, when Christ who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, him saying, who is your life, is not the emphasis of the statement, but I underlined it because it stood out to me. He's saying, hey, don't forget, he is your life now. You died with him. You are hidden in him. You're going to raise in glory with him. So what do we do? Well, here's what the world would tell you to do. The world would say, you know, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Maybe you've heard people say that before. It's catchy. 
Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And what people mean by that is, you know, you've got a lot to do here and now. And, and, and don't just be so fixated on getting to heaven that you miss your moment. But I would say that the Apostle Paul would disagree with that statement. Because what we just read is the exact opposite. Paul's not saying, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Paul is saying, look, because you're hidden in Christ, because he is your life, set your mind on things that are above, not on the earthly things. And not only did the apostle Paul say it, the apostle John said it too. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, he said, do not love the world or anything that's in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's not talking about loving lost people. He's talking about worldliness, worldly possessions, worldly desires, worldly attractions. He's saying if these are the things that you're running after, then you're not at the same time running after God. You can't run two places at once. So what is he saying? He's saying what Paul said. He's saying what Jesus said. Store up your treasures in heaven. Have a long view of life. Because you know this. You know this to be true, and so do I. It's the temporary things. It's the things that don't matter that usually are the things that distract us and sideline us from fulfilling what really does matter, our God-given purpose. It's usually the small things. Jesus said it's the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. It's, It's those little things that just take our emotions and our energy and our strength and they, and they sap it away. It's when you live with the long view. It's, it's not earthly-minded people that invest their money to clothe and feed orphans on the other side of the world. Earthly-minded people don't do that. It's the heavenly-minded. It's people that are thinking about what matters What's bigger than my own desires? It's those people that build orphanages and and hospitals in third world countries. It's heavenly minded people that sacrificially serve with their time and their talents for others. It's heavenly minded young adults that say, you know what, even though I'm new in this uh, career and I'm the low guy on the totem pole and and I'm making the smallest salary, I'm going to continue to invest in the kingdom of God. I'm going to give of my tithe and my offerings. It's heavenly-minded people that make those kind of decisions, that recognize that God has put me here with purpose, and I'm not going to spend it living a self-indulgent lifestyle. Listen, if you are going to live the life that God wants you to live, reality is the work that you do will be known a thousand years from now. If you live your life the way that God wants you to live, if you invest in what really matters, What you do will be known in eternity. It will matter. And not only will it be known, the Bible says it's going to be rewarded. You might feel like nobody sees it. The effort's not worth it today. I mean, it's just too hard. I got, I, you know, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do all that. I got too much stuff going on. I got too many immediate things in my face. I can't think about 100 years from now. I'm trying to pay this week's bills. But if we will allow our vision to be higher and set apart and not be choked out by the cares of this world. What you do in this life will reap a reward in eternity. And, and I just got to say, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know a lot. I didn't have a lot of things figured out when I was a young adult. But I'm so, so thankful that I understood this. I understood that no matter how long I live, 
One day it's going to end. And when it ends, I'm going to stand before my maker. And I'm going to give an account for the deeds done in the body. Now, there's a lot of mistakes I made as a young adult, and I didn't have things figured out, but I did know that. And so I understood that regardless of what what I do, career-wise, regardless of where I live, I'm going to be held accountable for my actions, for my money, for my talent, for my opportunities, for my relationships. See, when, when I was a young, young adult... I was 18 years old. I moved out and 700 miles away from my family two days after I graduated high school. And, and that, that sounds like a bad thing. It wasn't bad. Like, they, they still love me. I love them. Nobody was kicked out or anything like that. I, I just, I was just bound and determined to get back to my high school sweetheart. I've been dating her for 25 years now. And two days after high school, I got in a car in Lilburn, Georgia, my car, the one I had bought five days earlier because my high school truck couldn't have made the trip. (laughs) So I bought like a family car and just because it could fit all my stuff and I loaded up and I drove 700 miles away. And I'm going to be honest with you, I I didn't have a clue in that season of my life what I was going to do with my life. I didn't have a clue what I was going to be. I didn't have a clue uh, what career path I wanted to take. I mean, my senior year of high school, I dreaded my appointment with the guidance counselor because I knew they were going to ask me, you know, know, you're picking classes for your last year. Like, what do you want to do? Which direction? I don't know. I I was that kid. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And and for some of you that that know me, you know I grew up in in a pastor's home. But I'm going to tell you, I had no intention of being in the ministry. Not that I was against it, I just didn't feel called to it. I did not think that's what God was gonna do with my life. But I understood in in that first year of of self-discovery and questioning everything I was ever taught in a good way, in a healthy way. Questions are not bad, by the way. But going to the word of God and saying, okay, do I believe this? Okay, I was told this, do I believe that? Well, where does it say that? What do I believe? Through that whole year of, of, of just wondering and and, and getting grounded as an adult, I understood that I'm going to give an account for what I do with my life. And and I made one decision based on that understanding that that probably a a saving grace in my life. And the decision I made was I'm going to serve my local church. I'm going to serve. I've never been a part of a church that I didn't serve. I thank God I was taught that. Some of you had to figure that out for yourself. I I was taught that growing up. And so when I moved out on my own, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm working 40 hours a week at a secular job. And a a friend of mine had actually gotten me the job. I was working in the warehouse at Weinstein Supply Company in in Lancaster, just putting in the hours there. I was doing the work. You know, here's the crazy thing. Harry Wagner was in our first service, and Harry and I worked together. I would spend all day packing boxes of of fittings in a box, and then he'd pull in with his truck. I'd I'd load the truck so he could take them out the next day. Here's an even crazier thing. Dozens and dozens of times, I wrote the customer name on the box, and I wrote ASAP Plumbing and Heating, the company that Earl 
owns. God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? I was rubbing shoulders with Pastor Chris's future father-in-law. All the while, not having a clue what God's doing in my life. And boy, look at what God has done by his grace. These men who knew me as just a little warehouse squire running around doing stuff, uh, recognized the gift and call of God in my life and called me their pastor. And I, and I, I recognize this about all of that, that God wants to use whatever position you're serving in right now to move you towards his will. Well, I don't know what your job is. I don't know if you like it. I don't know if you love it or if you hate it. But the reality is God can use it. And maybe you're here today and that's your question. You're saying, well, what am I going to do with my life? What's God's plan for me? What's God's purpose? Or maybe you're at a place where you're deep into the journey and you're wondering if you need to take a new course, start a new direction, reset the whole thing and, and find it again. I just want to give you a practical word of encouragement. Take the position of servant. And you'll never be out of work. You'll never be out of work. There'll always be something for you to do if you have the heart of a servant. Jesus said, the one who wants to be the greatest must be the servant of all. And so when I moved out on my own, I just started attending church really for the first time in my life, not the PK, just attending. And I did all that I ever knew to do. I served. I just volunteered. Need somebody in kids' church? I can help with that. Need somebody to help set up chairs? I can do that. Need somebody to play on the worship team? Not very good, but I can do that. Give me some time. And I just served. And God used that. So here's what I'm going to tell you. Take the posture of a servant. And then second, get busy doing the known will of God. What I mean by that is what we question, we, we want clarity about the will of God. It's about the specifics. You know, God, do you, do you want me to, to go to this college? Do you want me to take this job? Is this the one, this relationship? You know, we, we have those questions about the details, and sometimes the uncertainty about the unknown can paralyze us from doing the known will of God. So I can just tell you, as a young adult, I spent a lot of time not knowing what was next. But I never spent that time idle. I served. You know, I, I heard just this morning, I've been gone for a week and a half. I heard just this morning from our nursery workers, like, we, we need more workers for this Christmas season. We need volunteers to serve. And, and hey, there's opportunities right here in this church for you to serve, to just get involved. And again, maybe you weren't taught that. I, 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 did, I don't know anything except that. I know nothing about being a Christian spectator always been a participant. But for you, maybe that's something you have to do to say, you know what? I don't know what my gift is. I don't know what my calling is. I don't know if God wants me to, you know, preach to nations. Probably not. But I can serve. I can serve. And it's in doing the known will of God that God will reveal his hidden will, his secret plans, his unique plans, his perfect plan for your life. You know, I think about the 12 disciples who would become the apostles and the pillars of the church. That whole journey for them began with two words. Follow me. That's it. Follow me. No promises, no guarantees, no, no, no positions. Just follow me. 
And I think if we'll do that, if we'll just begin to do what we know God wants us to do right here, right now, God will begin to reveal. The Bible says the steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 21, it says, many are the plans of a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. God will fulfill his purpose in your life. And here's what we do, though. We get fixated on the what. What am I, what am I supposed to do? Or the where. Should I go here? Should I go there? Or the how? I, I mean, I, I'm just not sure how I'm going to do it. I'm not, let me tell you what God's focused on. He's focused on the who. He's focused on who you are going to become in the process. More than anything else, it's your heart that he longs for. More than anything else, it's his image that he wants to mold you into. And so that's why what he cares about when it comes to you finding the will of God is who you're going to be. And here's what I've learned. God can cultivate character in my life anywhere, whether it's working in the church or working in a warehouse, whether it's in some mom co-op or at the grocery store or wherever you find people. God can work out character in your life. He can take the assignment you have to get you to the assignment he has for you. He'll take you there. So what I want you to understand today is that that work, work is his will. Your work is God's will. Whatever your job is right now, God God can use it. I'm not saying it's it's where you're going to always be. I'm not saying it's where you're going to retire from. Maybe, maybe your job is not a paid job. Maybe you're just, you know, you're a stay-at-home uh, caretaker or, or some other, maybe you're retired, but the place where you're serving is God's will for your life. What you're doing matters if you do it for the glory of God. See, here's the thing. We, we put too much, too much of our identity in our occupation. You know, like when you meet somebody new, what do they ask? 99.9% of the time. So what do you do? Right? Listen, your your job matters, but it doesn't matter that much. It's not your identity. It's supposed to feed you. (laughs) It's supposed to provide for you. It's not your identity. It's not who you are. I mean, what if we answered a more authentic answer to that question? You know, what do you do? Well, I, I love my children. Uh, I love my wife well. I serve Jesus with all my heart. You know, what if we just answered the question according to God's purpose and God's plan instead of just saying, this is what I do? I mean, you would think that God created human doings, but he didn't. He created human beings because he has a plan and a purpose and an identity in mind for us. Let me just give you quickly three reasons for work in case you needed one. I'll give you three. Number one, to provide for your needs. Your job is, again, it's not supposed to fulfill you. It's not supposed to be everything. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life to the full. Jesus is supposed to fulfill you, not your nine to five. Jesus is supposed to give you fullness of life. His purpose is supposed to fill you. Your job is just supposed to feed you. It's... it's, It's necessary, but it's not ultimate. It's not what anyone's going to know in 80 years. Listen to what Paul said about this, because this is 
Well, I'm just going to tell you in advance, this is going to hurt, maybe. <laughs> this is very practical. But Paul was writing to Timothy, and he said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, he said, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's serious. He's saying, look, if, if, if you're capable, if you're able, if you're physically able to work and to provide for your needs and for your own family's needs and you don't do it, you're worse than a sinner. You're worse than an unbeliever. You're worse than a person that never even met Jesus before. Why? Because God has given you that ability. He's given you that work for that purpose, to meet and to provide for your needs. Let me give you a second reason that we have work. We have work to not only provide for our needs in our household, we have work to provide for the needs of others, for those that can't. Because there are people that just can't. They can't meet their needs. They can't provide for themselves. And here, here's what John said about it in the epistle of 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. He said, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Again, strong words, strong words, but he's saying, look, if you love God, if you love God and you recognize that he's in control, and he's blessed you and he's given you material possessions and you see somebody in need and, and you don't do anything about it, th th that doesn't line up. Then you, you don't understand God. You don't love God because God's given you the opportunity to work so that he could position you to be a blessing. That was, that was what God told Abraham way back in Genesis when he established the covenant. He said, I will bless you. And we love that part. I will bless you to be a blessing. I want to pour my blessing, not just to you, but through you. That you're not just a bucket. You're a conduit. You're a funnel for my goodness. The whole earth is going to be blessed by you. I'm going to bless you so that I can bless the nations. Let me give you the third reason. The third reason that God has blessed us with work and that I can honestly say to you today that your work is God's will. Number three, it provides, and this is maybe the most important one, it provides for the advancement of the gospel. That's why God has blessed you financially because his kingdom is the only one he's building. He didn't say, I will build your 401k and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He never said that. He's building his church, his kingdom, and God blesses us so that we can be participants in advancing the gospel. When you think about Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, he's the apostle Paul. He's an incredible theologian. He's an incredible orator and, and, and speaker and communicator. He's a missionary and evangelist. But did you also know that Paul was a tent maker? Yeah. Paul had a job that he was good at doing, and he chose to continue doing it for one purpose, because it allowed him the flexible hours and the income to advance the gospel. He could work making tents all day, and he could preach at night, or he could, he could preach during the day, and he could make tents at night. He had one singular purpose. He wanted to advance the gospel. But he was a tent maker. And he didn't, I don't think he did it because he liked doing it. I really don't. I, because 
he never writes about. I mean, in all of his letters, he doesn't ever talk about tent making. You know, when you get around people that love what they do, they talk about it, right? I mean, you, you talk about what you love. Not Paul. I don't, I don't think he had this burning passion like, oh, I just want to get some more leather and some more twine. Like, I, I just want to make some more tents. No, he, he eats, sleeps, and breathes the gospel, but he saw his job as an opportunity to provide a way to advance the gospel. And let me just say today, work, not just your work right now, but work in general has always been God's will for you and me. It's always been. See, let me show you something in Genesis because we get this, we get this a little twisted sometimes. The Bible says in, in Genesis chapter three, you know, Adam and Eve had sinned and, and now they were going to be cursed because of it. And so God, God speaks this curse in Genesis 3:17 to Adam. He said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And we read that verse and we say, see, work is part of the curse. That's why we have to work because Adam and Eve blew it and now we're cursed. And let me just say, work is not the curse. The curse is the toil of your hands and the sweat of your brow. The reality that work is work, that it's hard sometimes, that it's difficult. But even before there was sin in the story of humanity, work was God's assignment. Go back one chapter to chapter two. I want you to see verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That was Adam's assignment. There was, no, there was no sweat of the brow. There was no toil. It wasn't difficult, but it was work. Can I promise you today, heaven is not going to be a place where we just float around in silk gowns strumming golden harps. That is not my idea of heaven. Reality is, God's plan for you and I from the beginning was work. It was to work. There's something honorable in it. He's given us dominion and authority. He's given us the right to, to, to lead and to produce and to multiply and to be fruitful. He wasn't just talking about procreation when he said be fruitful and multiply. We, we have the opportunity to work and to serve him. And when you get to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, we get a picture of what heaven is going to be like. We get a picture of when God takes all the wrong and makes it right again. I, I want you to see this. It's Revelation 22, verse 3. In that moment, it says, no longer will there be any curse. Can somebody say amen? That means no more toil, no more sweat. It says the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city. But listen to this part. And his servants will serve him. That's what we're going to do for all of eternity. We're going to be serving the Lord. We're going to be working. Why? Because it is his will for our lives. It always was from the beginning. Your work is not only God's will, but your work is your worship. I, I honestly don't know. We, we don't know if, if Paul liked making tents or not. But here's what I'm thoroughly convinced of. I believe he was good at it. I believe he did it with excellence. 
I, I believe he did it with all of his heart. This idea that your work is your worship is something that we talked about in our, in our life group series this fall, when we talked about this core value in our church of battling mediocrity. Because it was Paul who wrote these words to the church in Colossae. He said in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So this was Paul's attitude, that whatever work you do, whatever your hand finds to do, do it as if you're doing it for Jesus. Your work is not only God's will, your work is your worship. Do it as unto the Lord. Do it to the very best of your ability. And that's going to testify that, yes, there is toil. Yes, there is labor and there's sweat of the brow. But when I can humble myself and take the role of a servant and do the known will of God, I'm just going to do my job and I'm going to do it for his glory to the best of my ability. We communicate a a testimony and a foretaste to a world. God's intended purpose and plan for us to to joyfully serve him forever and forever, to joyfully serve him. But one of the things, and and this is where I want to end today, one of the things that that sidelines us and paralyzes us from fulfilling God's plan for our life, whatever, whatever that area may be, the thing that holds us back oftentimes is worry. And, and, You've probably found this to be true in your life that usually the things we worry about are not the eternal matters. It's not the big things. It's the small distractions. It's the little things. It's the seemingly insignificant things that get us all worked up and and beside ourselves with worry. And I'm just going to tell you today, worry can paralyze you from the plan of God. It can absolutely stop you from fulfilling your God-given destiny. If you're still in Matthew 6, I I want you to see something that Jesus said. Because in Matthew 6, Jesus is describing the characteristics of the citizens of his kingdom. That's what this is, the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, for those that are in my kingdom, this is what we look like. This is how we live our lives. And so in verse 25 of Matthew 6, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Then he asks this great question. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Can you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? He said, don't, don't worry. You know, statistically speaking, and I know I've given you a lot of statistics in this series, but statistically speaking, we, we're a worrisome bunch. According to the World Health Organization, America is the most anxious country in the world of all those that they, that they survey. 
One third of Americans suffer from anxiety disorders at some point in their life. And with, within our anxious country, the studies say that young adults are the most anxious of all. Listen to this. More than half of millennials report that they've lost sleep and lain awake at night in the past month due to stress. More than half because of stress, because of worry, because of anxiety or or fear, whatever name you want to give it. I'm telling you, it's a big deal. Big enough that we spend a couple of billion dollars annually on medications to try to manage it. There was a large study that was done in Britain, and it was a study of 68,000 people. And they found this. They found that even low levels of worry could literally kill you. The study showed that people with even mild symptoms of anxiety, such as sometimes lying awake at night and worrying, like over half the millennials in America, that those people with mild symptoms were 20% more likely to die within the 10-year period covered by the study. That's alarming. You're 20% more likely to die if you have low symptoms of worry. And why am I saying this? Because Jesus said, you can't add a single hour to your life by worrying. Worrying is a waste of your time. But I want to tell you, it's more than that. It's a waste of your life. It literally takes years off of your life. And maybe you're listening to this and you're going, yeah, okay, that's not encouraging because the reality is I, I have worried. I still worry. You're making me more worried the more you talk about it, and you're not helping me. Should I worry about being worried? Look at at what Jesus concludes with, Matthew 6, verse 34, 33 and 34. He says, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. What are all these things, all the things that they had been worried about? The clothes you're going to wear, the food you're going to eat, where you're going to lay your head. He said, if you'll just seek first. You know what Jesus is saying in that moment? He's saying what Paul had said. Don't think on the things of this world. Think on the things above. Set your mind on heavenly affections. He said, if you'll seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, all this other stuff will be added to you as well. Verse 34. Therefore, that's a purpose statement. Therefore, do not Worry. This is the third time he said it. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let me get right to the the core issue with worry. The, The question is, who's in control? That's the question with worry. Who is in control? Because if I'm worried, I'm either saying I don't trust the person that that is in control to actually handle it correctly, or I don't know who's in control. I'm worried because it doesn't feel like there is any control. If if you're in that place of worry, you got a few options. One is the path of world religion. World religion says it is up to you. It's in your control because your eternity is going to be determined by how good you do and what you don't do. And if you do enough good and avoid enough bad, you're going you're gonna to have an eternal reward. 
And if that's the way you're living, this works-based mentality that I'm going to earn my way to heaven, let me just tell you, you ought to worry <laughs> because none of us have been good enough yet. But the atheist offers a, a, a different philosophy. The atheist says, it's all a big coincidence. No, no one's in control. It, it's all a big coincidence, and, and it's all just going to end, and it's all just going to be nothing. And, and if that's your philosophy, again, maybe worry is the appropriate response. Because if nobody's in control, anything could happen. Everything could go wrong. And why does it even matter? But there's a third option. And the third option is to believe that, that God is in control. That God is in control. But if you're here today and you say, I do believe that. I believe that God is in control, but I'm still paralyzed by worry and anxiety and fear and stress. Let me just challenge you to consider the implications of, of what that means. If you believe that God is in control and yet your life is still consumed by worry and stress and anxiety and fear, then, then you're saying something. You're, you're saying God is in control, but he's a terrible navigator. Or you're saying, maybe even worse, you're saying that, that God is in control, but he's not for me. He's against me. That's why, I'm, that's why I'm worried. That's why I'm stressed, because maybe God is in control, but he's not for me. I want to tell you today, you can rest in the control that God has for your life. You know, most of the stuff that we worry about, it's never going to happen. Have you noticed that to be true? The stuff that we're really afraid of, it's, it's, it's usually the stuff that's never even going to happen. And, and what if worrying did help? Even if worrying about the stuff actually helped, you don't have the mental capacity to worry about everything. Like some, something's going to blindside you. Something you never saw coming is going to happen, and, and you wasted all that effort worrying about the wrong thing. I, now, I, I told you online I was going to show you a video today because some of you were worried about me last week because I announced that 10 days ago I was going to go skydiving. It was a, a birthday celebration, and, and I went skydiving. And everybody that's asked me about it, for the most part, asked the same question. Were you scared? Were you worried? Or before I did it, are you, are you worried? Are you scared? And I want to tell you, honest truth before the Lord, I was not worried. I'm going to tell you why. Because when we were driving over there, I, I told my brother, I said, I got a question for the guy I'm jumping with. He's like, what are you going to ask him? I said, I'm going to ask him, what are your plans this weekend? <laughs> like, I want to know you, you got something to go to after this, right? Like, I, I don't want, like, the 22-year-old adrenaline junkie that's got a T-shirt that says live or die. Like, no, 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 there's no options here. It's just live. It's just live. <laughs> I want to jump strapped to the guy that's got, like, you know, a dinner reservation, four kids, a wife, he's got to get home by six o'clock. Like, that's the guy I'm jumping with. And so I get there and I met Art. He owns the business. I found out Art jumps like 30 times every week. Been doing it for years. Art's got weekend plans. I'm like, I'm with Art. <laughs> Art is in control. We're going to do this jump. He's probably going to do one or two more jumps, and then he's going to go home, and he's going to have dinner with his family. I have the same plan with mine. I'm with Art. And so we got out, and, and, and we did it. We jumped. And I'm telling you, it was, it was awesome. In fact, I'll show you the video. If you have that, cue it up. It's about 55 seconds. I want you to see this video.
So right about now, right about now we're 13,500 feet in the air, traveling at 120 miles per hour. And if I'm not smiling big enough, it's because I've lost control of my facial muscles. But we had a blast doing that. And the guy that was shooting the video is Art's son, Shane. And just like Art, Shane's done this a hundred times, hundreds of times. Uh, he wears the GoPro on his helmet. He jumps out first and he records the whole thing. I wasn't worried for Shane either. What was crazy is we got back to the hangar and Shane had to leave. He had another job he had to get to, so he left. And we just stick around for a while. We were hanging out. About 25 minutes passed by, and the phone rings, and Art gets a call. Your son, Shane, was in a terrible car accident on his way to work. His truck is totaled. And so Art had to kind of cancel the plans and get in the car and, and go see his son. And, and I, just, I just sat there in the irony of this moment, thinking about how much time we could spend worrying about what we think is going to happen when the thing we're worried about is not the thing. The reality is nobody was worried about a car accident last Friday. We were all thinking about 13,500 feet at 120 miles per hour. The reality is the stuff that we worry about so often is the stuff that'll never happen, and, and yet we allow those fears of the unknown to paralyze us from fulfilling our God-given purpose, from fulfilling our destiny and God's plan for our life. And, and I would just echo what Jesus said in verse 27 of Matthew 6, who can add a single hour to your life by worrying? I want to challenge you today. Don't, don't waste your life worrying about things that won't happen. Max Lucado wrote a book recently called Anxious for Nothing, and the title comes from Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, and he says that, uh, you know, Kindle reader, the digital readers, kind of like this one, Kindle tracks the most downloaded books, and they also track the most underlined passages in books, and, and Kindle reader said that this verse, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, is the most underlined passage in any book in the world. That's amazing. That tells me that there's a lot of people that want to know the answer for anxiety. So I want to read that verse, and here's what it says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, again, if you're here and you love Jesus, but you are anxious, you are worried, maybe you're feeling frustrated, like this doesn't help, it just says don't be anxious about anything. But let me give you a, a better translation of, of that text. When it writes, be anxious for nothing, really what it's saying is this, do not allow yourself to stay at a perpetual state of anxiety. That's what it's saying. It's like when Jesus in John 14 said, don't let your heart be troubled. 
He didn't mean don't ever let your heart be troubled because just a few passages earlier, he said, I'm troubled in spirit. So Jesus was troubled. What he was saying to them and what uh, Paul is saying to us is don't stay there. Don't, yes, anxiety is going to come. Yes, worry moments are going to come, but don't stay there. Your, your mind is like a hotel lobby and you're the manager and anybody can walk in to that lobby, but you decide who gets a room key. That's the way it is with our worry and with our anxiety and with our fear. You know, I, I stayed at a hotel Friday night on my way home. And the first question that the manager asked me, he said, what method of payment will you be using this evening? That was a nice way of saying nobody stays for free. He wanted to know before we get the paperwork out, before I have you sign anything, before I scan a, a room card, I want to know how you're paying for this. And I just want to say there are a lot of people, maybe even here today, that you've been allowing worry and fear and anxiety to live rent free in your mind. And you, you need to serve an eviction notice to those emotions, to not be anxious any longer, but in every situation, how? By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here's the promise, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I watched a video of Elizabeth Smart recently. Many of you would remember her from years ago. She was the 14-year-old girl that was abducted, and she was missing for nine months uh, until finally she was rescued from her captors. Well, now she's a little older, she's married, and, and she speaks to people about overcoming things. And she said, the greatest advice I ever got was the day after I was, I was rescued my mom said to me, Elizabeth, your captors, they stole nine months from your life. You will never get them back. They took that from you. But the best thing that you can do is to make a decision today to live your life, to go after your dreams, to fulfill your plans and your purpose, and to refuse to let them have one more day. And that's what some of you need to do. See, for some of you, adulting is hard because adolescence was hard. And if it's not fear or worry or anxiety about the future, it's bitterness and regret from the past. And some of you need to just serve an eviction notice on those emotions and say, look, you can come in here once in a while, but you can't get past the lobby. You are not staying here. You do not live here any longer. Paul used strong words when he talked about the battlefield of the mind. Let me give you this verse, because this is what some of you need to do. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, it says, we demolish arguments. Look at this. Every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's what you have to do. Take every thought captive. I, I, I refuse to stay in this place of worry. I refuse to stay in this perpetual place of confusion. I, I don't know what God wants me to do. I, no, I'm going to serve him today. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but tomorrow has enough worries for itself. I'm going to stay in the day, and I'm going to worship God, and I'm going to do the work of God and the will of God, and I'm going to trust him to order my steps and meet me in the journey. You know, I, I had a, a lady, a young adult, actually, about three weeks ago, called the church. She 
Val talked to her and she passed her through to me and she said, I, I just really feel like I need to talk to a pastor. Okay, well, what's, what's going on? And she began to share with me just, she had a decision to make. She didn't know if she was gonna start a job here or go somewhere else. And, you know, and she was just so stressed about it. She said, I just, I don't know, I don't know what to do. I just felt like if I, if I just talked to a pastor, you know, I could get some clarity. And I said, well, how'd you find us? How do you know me? She said, Google, <laughs> you know, just random. We just Google, we came up. I just need to talk to somebody. And so she came over to the church and we sat down and we talked. And her question was the question a lot of people ask. I don't know what God wants me to do. I'm waiting for God to just show me this. I'm waiting for God to say that. I'm waiting for God to say the what and the where and the why. And here's what I told her and here's what I wanna tell you. Oftentimes we pray for God's will. We're looking for God to give us a map. A map is, is great. I mean, I used a map getting back here and it told me, turn right, exit now, merge left. And you can follow a map and you can know every step of the way. And we want God to lead us that way, but God's will is not revealed as a map. What God does is he gives us a compass. And a compass doesn't tell you where you're going. A compass tells you where north is. A compass says this is, this is the high thought. This is the heavenly things. This is the plan and the purpose that I have for your life. And so I shared with that young lady, I said, listen, you're asking for God to give you the steps. Ask God to give you his presence. Let's just ask God to come near because God's peace is always connected to his presence. And so I, I just prayed for a few moments for her. And we, we didn't say, God, should, should she go here? Should she go there? We just prayed and said, God, would you just bring peace into this moment right now? We need to know. We need to know that you're here. We need to know that you care. We need to know that you're not up there waiting for her to make the wrong decision so that you can say, aha, you missed it. No, no, no. You love her. You're for her. God, would you give us your peace? And we just sat there. After about 20 seconds, we opened our eyes. And I said, do you know what you're supposed to do? I said, yeah. I know. That's all I needed. I know. Now, maybe for you, it's not that easy. I don't know what decisions you have to make. But I'm going to tell you, stop sidelining yourself from God's purpose because you don't know what tomorrow holds. God's will for you is right now. His will is today. He has a plan and a purpose. And I, I want to just pray for you right now. And maybe you're that person that lays on your bed at night full of anxiety, full of worry, full of fear. Maybe you're that person that is just, it's paralysis by analysis. There's so many things you could do, you're doing nothing. You're just waiting. You're just waiting. You just don't know. I want to pray right now that God's peace would come to you. Would you bow your head with me? God, right now, you know every care, you know every weight, you know every worry, you know every unanswered question. And God, we came to this house this morning to worship you. And if all we did is sing about how good you are and celebrate you as our Savior, that would be enough. But God, you love us and you're for us and you have put your hand on us and you have called us your children and you have invested in our success. And so God, in this moment, I'm convinced I'm convinced that you want to lead and guide your people with your presence. So God, would you just bring peace right now where there's been questions? Bring peace right now where there's been uncertainty. God, bring peace in this moment where there's been confusion and fear.
Thank you, Lord God, that right now in this moment, we don't have to be anxious about anything. But in this situation, by prayer and petition, we can make our request known to you. And we can do it with thanksgiving because you've always been faithful and you never change. And today we have this promise, God, that your peace, which goes beyond and transcends all of our understanding, it will come near now and it will guard our hearts and our minds in Jesus Christ. So Lord, in your power today, we serve an eviction notice on every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We bring those thoughts under captivity. We receive your peace and your direction and your purpose for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.